Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Philip Ball, the author of The Beauty of Chemistry, Art, Wonder, and Science. Images and text capture the astonishing beauty of the chemical processes that create snowflakes, bubbles, flames, and other wonders of nature. Chemistry is not just about microscopic atoms doing inscrutable things. It is the process that makes flowers and galaxies. We rely on it for bread baking, vegetable growing, and producing the materials of daily life. In stunning images and illuminating text, this book captures chemistry, as it unfolds. Using such techniques as microphotography, time-lapse photography, and infrared thermal imaging, the beauty of chemistry shows us how chemistry underpins the formation of snowflakes, the science of champagne, the colors of flowers, and other wonders of nature and technology. We see the marvelous configurations of chemical gardens, the amazing transformations of evaporation, distillation, and precipitation heat made visible, and more. Well, Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So as we're living through the unprecedented times during the coronavirus pandemic, well, quite a bit of time into the pandemic already, I'd like to start by asking how has it affected you and your work? Well, I feel like I've been one of the lucky ones who has been less, far less affected than most people because as a writer, as a freelance writer, I work from home, so I've been able to carry on doing what I do without too much disruption. It's a little bit samey because I, I have no trips. I have no, not even into the centre of town, into London. But nevertheless, I can continue working. And in fact, what it has meant is that, as with many people who write about science or communicate science in some form or another, the focus of my work has been, you know, so much geared towards looking into this pandemic, trying to communicate the science about it. But I think for me, um, also a lot of what I've been writing about is about how the science and the politics and the culture interact in a, an extraordinary situation like this. That's something that I've always been interested in in writing about in my science writing. And this is such a an, uh, an unprecedented example of how those different aspects of society interact and how science, you know, affects us so immediately in our lives. So did you find it easy to switch uh, onto the pandemic coverage uh, for your work? Well, I, I'll, uh, the way it happened really was that, you know, to begin with, um, and so I'm going right back to January of last year, when mm. it wasn't 
it, it only gradually became clear what we were really dealing with. And like a lot of people, you know, right at the outset, um, anyone who's followed uh, scientific developments will will be familiar with the you know the notion that we were thinking. Okay, we've seen similar things with SARS and um, and with MERS and with uh, bird flu and so on. You know, maybe it's going to be a bit like that. And so at the outset, I felt, well, you know, I've not tended so much to cover health issues. I tend to write more about primary science. So, you know, certainly life sciences, but in particular physics and chemistry. So I'll, I'll leave it to those people who really, you know, work on health, global health. That's their patch. Um and then little by little, I was asked to write a piece for the newspaper, The Guardian here. And I went to interview an epidemiologist um, in the centre of London. It was probably the last journey I took into the centre of London for a year, really. Um, and uh, I, after coming back from speaking to him, it, it was clear to me then and I think this was late January, that actually this was going to be really big. And it was, in fact, during the cycle ride, you know, back uh, back home, that I really started to, to appreciate this was something that was going to be so big that I really needed to get into it and to, um, you know, start familiarising myself with the issues. Um, so, yeah, at that point, uh, it, it became clear that, you know, the focus of my world was going to change as it did for many people. But for me in particular, it will, it meant that the focus of my work was going to change. Um, and it absolutely has for the past, you know, more than a year now. This is so, so much of what I've been writing about has been focused on the, the pandemic. And yeah, for sure. And the science writers like you, they have played such an important role during this pandemic. So have you felt some extra maybe pressure, perhaps? Um, you know, in some ways, I probably have because uh, I, I felt and I continue to feel that it, it's never been more vital for people to have good information about so many aspects of the pandemic, you know, how it's panning out. There have been so many aspects of it that have been controversial and have been hard to navigate and even hard for the the experts for the scientists let alone for science communicators like me let alone for the public um and so it's it's been a real struggle but a real really important uh thing to to try to do for example to you know when the vaccines started to appear um at the end of last year i felt almost a frantic uh uh urgency to communicate why it was that we could place our trust in in the way these vaccines have been checked out, that the haste with which they were, uh, or the speed really, I should say, with which they were um, developed, hadn't in any way compromised the care that had been taken in in developing them and checking out their safety, that it was natural that people would worry about that, but there were very clear reasons for that speed that weren't about cutting corners. And so it, it felt really important to try to get that across to people. You know, and then at earlier stages of the pandemic, when um, there was the big debate about masks and, um, you know, about how the virus was being transmitted, all of these things, um, it, it, it just felt so important to try to get out to people as much as I could the best information that we had, even and to, to recognise the uncertainties because one of the really striking and troubling things about the pandemic has been the extent to which misinformation has been used, seized upon, politicised, really. Um, you know, the whole pandemic has been politicised. Mm. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's 
really troubling to see how how much that happened and you know it's not just conspiracy theories although there was a lot of that around you know it it, it it's um misinformation sometimes coming from leaders from politicians all kinds of people had vested interests um in you know putting one particular message across or another um often that involved distorting the science or cherry picking the science and so I think, you know, it's really never been more important than than it has been over the past year that there be science communicators, science writers who are really trying to get reliable information to people who I think, you know, almost everyone is desperate for it. And I can really see how difficult it's been for people to navigate all of the different voices throughout this pandemic um, but but I do feel that, you know, that's been such an important task for people like me to try to do. And it sounds that uh, you took on the actual investigative role. So did you enjoy that part of it? Um, I've I've had been having to do more of that perhaps than um, that than I've I've done in the past. I mean, it's a it's a funny situation that we've been in because you know, we haven't been able to, we science communicators, to do the usual thing one would do in that situation of going out to speak to people in their labs, to interview them. You know, it's had to be, you had to do it all like this, you know, on Zoom or from home uh, by mm-hmm. phone. Um, but, you know, in some way, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's been an interesting thing to see how that has happened and how in some ways that makes the 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 job easier how you know how how these new technologies have um everyone has had to use them everyone has been at home the scientists you know generally have been at home available rather than out in the lab or at meetings or whatever so you know in some ways uh uh that that became easier and also you know i've ma- i've been making radio programs for the bbc during the the pandemic and that again um has all been done from home as it you know had to be and it's been really interesting to see how it, it now can be. Uh, you know, I think we've all become used to accepting that programs, television programs, radio programs aren't going to have absolutely the best audio quality. And, you know, uh, you're going to be seeing images of people you know, on screen on their, in, in, in Zoom instead of in person. And we've just got used to that. And I think actually there's something probably quite healthy about that, about recognising that, you know, it, it needn't be about all these high quality production values, that actually it's you can still get the message across um, in, in these other ways. Um, so, you know, I think that that actually is going to, to persist. I think that we're going to, to, to see those sorts of approaches to, you know, making these programs, uh, that that's going to continue. And I kind of welcome that because it, it means that it's, you know, it's much easier to do these things and it's less inhibiting, you know, than when you felt you had to be in a studio and get the highest audio quality. Um, and it is possible to do so much with these resources. So did you turn your laundry room into a recording studio? And can you give us the best duvet brand for sound isolation? Well, absolutely. You you see, um, before, um, that's what we'd have to do, you know, that if I had to record a little sort of insert for the BBC at home, you know, it would be only as a last resort and I'd have to try to use sound insulation and so on. And now all of that is gone, you know, because everyone accepts that it's, it's going to sound as it is. So in some ways, you know, it's easier and it means, you know, you might sometimes 
sometimes have background noise. And, you know, whereas in the past, if someone was doing an interview this way and the kids walked in, you know, this was it would that that would sort of go viral and everyone would sort of love it. And now it's just normal there. You know, that's happening all the time. It may happen now. I, I hope it won't. But, you know, we may hear some background noises. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think that's um, uh, that's the, the 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 culture that we're we're now in. And I think in some ways, like I say, that's that's not a bad thing. Oh, for sure. And I actually find all of these uh, background noises quite precious. Been listening to the BMJ podcast, the uh, British Medical Journal, and you can hear the uh, birds on the background. It's uh, yeah, it's really really strange. Yeah, well, you, and in some ways, you know, it, it it reminds us that all of these things, and you know, scientists talking about the, their work, um, it's happening in the real world. It you know gets yeah. rid of this need for a sort of artificial perfection um, in in talking about it. That actually, of course, you know like everyone they're people at home with kids or families or you know um uh with with you know bedrooms and bookshelves and so on so no i've i've made recordings i have a a, a little home office but you know some recordings i've made upstairs in the bedroom or down the garden in the shed um depending on what seemed best under the circumstances mm-hmm. and that's there's something very nice about that so as i mentioned um you work for bbc so can you also tell us a bit more about your background, perhaps in science and journalism? Sure. Um, yes. Well, I feel as though the the situation that I'm in now, and I never, I mean, I, I, I'm a freelance writer, as I say, I can sort of define it no better than that, um, mm-hmm. is something that I never planned. I kind of wandered into. I'm find, still finding my way, uh, you know, around it after decades of of having done it because i when i began on this path whatever it is um there there it was not really a professionalized business at all science communication um there were people who who wrote you know science writers for for the newspapers um but science writing was um there was no sort of set way into it these days there are science communication science journalism courses that one can take at university and i think it's fantastic that those exist and what i've seen of them and i've sometimes taken part in them and they seem very good but you know i began this in in the late 80s um after finishing my phd in physics and i realized that actually unusually i had actually enjoyed writing up my thesis and I'd enjoyed writing the papers and I'd and I'd realized that actually I did always enjoyed writing I've always you know done writing on the side but it had never occurred to me before because no one had even suggested it that one could combine a love of writing and a love of science um so I figured maybe this was possible and I thought you know maybe I should go into science editing and so I just sent off letters um and the, in those days it had to be letters there was no email um it, you know it, to see whether there were jobs around and I was extraordinarily lucky that a space opened up at nature the science journal you know just at that right time um that I happened to fit I uh, my first degree was in chemistry and then in physics and they were looking for someone with that kind of background to, as an editor there and these were the days where these days uh, nature is a, a publishing empire and it has I lose track of how many journals are in the nature uh, t- uh under the nature titles but in those days it was just a single journal and it was run out of a you know cramped office uh, just off the strand in London 
and um, it was a fantastic place to be. It, it, it meant that my my job was um, as a, an editor deciding which papers to publish. But uh, so there was no formal uh, part of the job that meant uh, I, I needed to, to write anything. But if one was interested in doing that, as I was, then there were opportunities to write for newspapers and, and so forth. And so I pursued those opportunities at the same time as, as um, being an editor. And after several years, I figured, well, maybe I'd like to write a book. And so I did that. And I did that as a full-time editor at uh, Nature. And it was horrendous in the sense that the job was all oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, It was, you know, I was getting up at five, six in the morning and writing a little bit of it before I went into work. Um, and so when I finished that, I, I said, well, I'd like to write another, but I don't want to do it that way again. So I went part time at Nature and gradually uh, sort of stepped down until finally I officially cut my ties as uh, a, an employee at Nature. I guess this was over 20 years ago and became freelance. Um, and by which time, I guess I had I'd written enough books and I had, you know, figured I had enough contacts uh, to be able to find places to write for a new scientist and you know the scientific media as well as continuing to write for nature actually I still do that now um so that so I kind of wandered into <laughs> into this position and I feel it's an extraordinarily fortunate position it's a real privilege to be in this position where I can choose what I want to write about I can follow my own interests whether it's for books or for journalism and you know and 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 just do that and do that at my own pace and you know in a place and at a time of my own choosing um, so that's really what the work consists of now. And it's, it means it's a mixture of things. I, so I do some, you know, some of the time spent book writing, some of it is spent journalistically, and I have done things sort of quasi regularly for the, for the BBC, which is another kind of communication, which I've enjoyed tremendously. It's a very different set of challenges to, uh, to present a, a you know, a radio program, um, so it really depends on what comes along, um, what what takes my fancy. Interesting. So earlier mentioned that you really enjoyed writing your thesis and papers during your academic uh, time. But of course, communicating to public is much different. So did you always have this drive for communication? And how did you manage to master those skills? I well, whatever to to whatever extent I have mastered them, and there's always more to learn. Um, it was learning on the job, learning you know literally by making mistakes. I I, I guess um, there there were certainly there was there was a lot of technical learning that I did at Nature in terms of you know when I started, I uh, editors would need to learn how to sub edit, so to, to have a bit of text and to turn it into something more readable and to get rid of all the grammatical errors and so on, uh, which I, I am fantastically grateful for the opportunity to, you know, to learn that because that's such an important skill, whether you're trying to edit your own text or, or anyone else's. But beyond that, um, you know, I've never had a, really a formal course in, in how to communicate science. So you learn by by trial and error, but I think particularly and i think this is the advice that is often given to people who are interested in in learning to to write by reading by reading people who do it well and you know trying to the extent that you can to to understand what it is about that particular writing that uh works for you um 
so uh, yeah, that's that that that's kind of how it it, it comes about. I mean, it, it's and it's a mixture of things. I think that you know part of what I do is straight journalism, where it's really a sort of job of translation of trying to communicate uh, a, 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 what may be quite an esoteric piece of science in language that a general audience can understand, and that's you know that that in itself is a nice challenge, and that's an important part of it. But I think increasingly what I felt uh, is an important part of what I want to do is to create context, is not so much to translate the science, but to try to embed it within the broader culture um, to explain, you know, where these ideas come from, what they what they might mean culturally and how they're received culturally. Um, so what I've found myself writing about has been much more, it's been about how science interacts, for example, with political systems, um, how science has interacted with the arts um, and really how science and with literature, you know, and how science uh, interacts, how it is a part of a broader culture. What I'm very keen to try to do is to bring science out of the what sometimes seems like a bit of a ghetto or certainly a niche, you know, um, that appeals to a certain kind of readership to try to bring it out of that and to contextualize it and to show how scientific developments and thoughts and really the ideas how they change cultures and i think that's really the thing that has has uh i found has drawn me to science communication it's about the ideas and how ideas develop and uh, how ideas are interpreted by different parts of society um, so that's really the focus, I, I think, of a lot of what I try to write about, to give science context. Oh, absolutely. And also, I think I can add that putting a bit of imagination into it as well. Because, for example, in chemistry, you have your uh, Eppendorf tube with a white or even clear liquid. So you don't even see what's going on. But then it's a, it's a whole world happening inside. So when you came to writing your book about chemistry... How did that happen? <laughs> well, um, this particular one, I mean, I, I should say, first of all, that um, chem- my first, the first book I wrote was about chemistry. And um, my, as I say, my first degree was was in chemistry. And I feel that there's a little bit of a mission in me, although I write across the sciences, chemistry is the, of the, the, the kind of key central sciences, chemistry is the neglected one. It It, it, it is far less popularized than you know there are many books about cosmology and quantum physics and you know string theory and people love that sort of esoteric part of, of physics there are many books about he- evolution human evolution um you know medical medicine and health but chemistry um has few people championing it and that was something I, I was keen to do. And it's a real challenge because as you say what you tend to see in chemistry you don't have these big particle accelerators. You don't have the abundance of the natural world. I mean, in both of those cases, there are aspects of chemistry that are relevant. But, you know, you tend to have often a flask with, uh, you know, a a liquid in it that might just be a clear liquid. Um, It's very hard to convey what molecules do, things that we never directly see or experience. Um, So that's, you know, that's the challenge with chemistry. And it's one that I enjoy trying to tackle. But what um, happened with with this particular book, uh, The Beauty of Chemistry, was 
it, it was in a, in a way it was handed to me on a plate because I um, was contacted by. Uh, so, so the book is is made in collaboration with two um, photographers. Uh, I, I, it feels like that doesn't do them justice. Actually, they're they're artists, both of them, um, Yen Liang and uh, Wen Ting Zhu. Uh, in China, who run a project called Envisioning Chemistry, and they um, make these astonishing videos, um, kind of stop motion uh, videos and time lapse videos of chemical processes of crystals growing and things uh, solid precipitating in a way that is just extraordinarily beautiful. Um, I'm so admiring of the, the, the art of what they do. And um, I was in China. I spent uh, before the pandemic. I regularly went to China, and I can't wait to get back uh, for various reasons. And um, one time when when I was there, um, Yen contacted me. He was in Shanghai. I was no, he was in Beijing. I was in Shanghai, and he said, um, "Look, I'm you know interested in perhaps writing a book based on the work we do." And he showed me the work, and I you know was astonished at it and so he came down from Beijing and we met up in the hotel and chatted and this was going back several years now and both agreed you know we'd be interested in doing something uh, together if the opportunity arose and then I guess it must be about two years ago now uh, Yen contacted me and said look I've got this um, I've been talking with MIT Press about making a book of the you know the images from the, the movies we've made would you be interested in writing the text? And so I jumped at the chance because um, it was just inspiring to do, to have these images, you know, as the source of inspiration. Um, and, and I just knew that it would be such fun because, you know, there, there was no pressure to convey any particularly sort of complicated chemical ideas or something. What I really wanted to do here was to convey something of the beauty, the wonder, the uh, the, the allure of chemical processes in a way that tried to do justice to the the you know the glorious visual way that uh, Yen and Wenting had had captured. So that was basically how how it came about, and it was just a, you know complete pleasure to have that freedom to try to convey in a way that said something about the images, you know, explained something about what we are seeing, but also I hope conveying something of that sort of wonder and that excitement about the the stuff of chemistry and i think that was you know that was really what i wanted to get across because that has always been and it was the reason i i um studied chemistry in the first place and i chose to study chemistry it's the stuff it's these colors it's the uh, the 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 crystals the the kind of um, sensuous nature of chemistry the smells actually and sometimes the you know the bangs the explosions all of this I think is very often meant so many chemists say that's what drew them to the subject there's something ascetic about it that I don't think you necessarily see or not in the same way in physics and in in biology so it was that that I really wanted to try to convey. Yeah, for sure. And that's something that uh, really sets uh, this book apart, that this beautiful amalgam of expertise that you bring as, as a chemist uh, and also uh, your colleagues who are artists. So uh, thinking about chemistry in everyday life, where do we find beauty in that? That's, I suppose, one thing that I'm hoping to at least set people thinking about. Because the kinds of things that um, Yen and Wenting are looking at in this book are things that we can find around us if we are sensitised to look 
to pay attention to 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 what is going on so for example there's a a chapter on they have these wonderful images of flowers the colors in flowers and how those colors might be changed in by chemical uh, processes by just tr- putting certain chemicals on the the petals, you can sometimes get extraordinary changes in color. Um, for you know, what one uh, example that I think uh, many people might be familiar with is that hydrangeas uh, are the the color of the well, I, I will say the flowers. It's actually they're they the the it's it's the. the they're, they're a kind of modified leaf that is actually has the color in uh, hydrangeas. So, you know, we're familiar with the idea that they're often pink or blue or, you know, somewhere in between a kind of mauvish color. And that color is determined by the acidity or the alkalinity of the soil in which they're growing. And so you can chemically manipulate that. Um, so, you know, that's uh, an example that is familiar to everyone. And I think a lot of people who do gardening will know, you know, that much chemistry that actually the kind of soil in which you plant your hydrangea will determine what colour it is and that you can perhaps alter that by just, you know, adding a bit of alkali to the soil, for example. So, yeah, that's that's one, you know, very everyday example um, the shapes of crystals, you know, that I think uh, we, we never particularly think to look at, you know, the shapes of sugar crystals or salt crystals. But actually, if you, you know, if you do, uh, you find that they have these very distinctive shapes that, that salt uh, crystals, sodium chloride, has that it tends to form tiny little cubes. And that cubic shape is directly related to the way the atoms or the ions, as they really are, are packed together in the crystals. So, you know, in some with something we can see with our naked eye, there is an echo of the, the symmetry, the shapes um, that are adopted by the at the atomic scale in this substance. So that's the kind of thing that I, you know, wanted to try to explore in these books. And, um, you know, the 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 images that Yen Wenting have, have made really bring that across when you sort of see these crystals form. And I think they do, if I remember rightly, I think we do maybe have some images of sodium chloride. And actually, they, you know, they alone can be incredibly beautiful when you, you know, look at them close up and when you have the skills uh, that Yen and Wenting have for photography, for photographing them in the right way. Yeah, for sure. And um, one of my sort of things that I really like is uh, molten salt from England coast. And it actually goes into these um, really, really clear crystals. So it, uh, um, it's really funny to look at and I suppose it tastes like salt. But what can you tell me about chemistry in food? In food, yes. Well, you know, I think that is probably the uh, the form of chemistry that um, most of us are most familiar with, mm. although we may not think of it in chemical terms unless you happen to be a chemist. Um, but but absolutely, I mean, people you know often compare chemistry to cooking, and it's not a flippant comparison by any means because um, there are a lot of similarities. And in fact, cooking is a kind of chemistry. You know, for example. Um, when uh, we roast or you know or fry um, uh, you know a piece of meat or, or something, then what we're doing is create is is carrying out a particular chemical reaction. Um, in, in that case, it, it it's one called the Maillard reaction, which um, is one that turns some of the uh, the 
it essentially kind of caramelizes <laughs> some of the it breaks down some of the proteins and you 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 get uh, the formation of some sugars um in the process and you get that that sort of rich um uh mixture of flavors uh you know when when something is 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 uh is fried or or roasted that way it creates the browning um that is a kind of caramelization and uh you know and that's where the flavors come from um so you know that's uh that that's uh one f- sort of familiar um example um i mean you know baking is is another that uh the the process there is the you know the baking powder is um the it's is bicarbonate uh that is breaking down and releasing carbon dioxide and that blows the bubbles that you get in bread or in uh, or in cakes um and uh you know it's all it, 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 it's all a kind of chemical transformation generally brought about by heat um i mean another one is in frying or boiling an egg uh where you know you get this transformation from the transparent uh substance uh, the albumin the egg white um in the raw egg sets and becomes this white um opaque material that's a process um in which the the proteins in that transparent substance uh they undergo a process called denaturation which is where they lose the 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 natural structure that they have they sort of unwind and then they all, all all these unwound strands tangle together and that sort of tangling creates um the the opaque whiteness it's a little bit because it scatters light it's a little bit like the same kind of whiteness that you see in milk um and so all the all those proteins are then sort of tangled together and once that happens you're stuck with it you can't untangle them so you can't you know unfry or unboil an egg um so yeah uh you know uh, there there all of these the these processes that happen in the kitchen there's you know an awful lot of chemistry that's going on behind them yeah perhaps the the lockdowns also made a big uh, chunk of population uh, chemists with the all the sourdough baking and <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Well, and uh, you know, in some case, in some ways, microbiologists as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Everyone was having to <laughs> yes, uh, when you have to sort of sustain these, you know, these um, uh, what do they call them anyway? The you know the uh, the the substances, the solution that uh, that is needed for um, for for sourdough. So yeah, uh, that 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 too is um, uh, you know, it's a it's a biochemical process. So all of these phenomena that you were talking about, it takes uh, its place on a very microscopic scales or even on, uh, in a way that is not even visible to the visible light. So what sort of technologies help us look into this invisible chemical world? Uh, well, we have been able to uh, to do that in to some degree since the early 20th century it was really then that we started to to get techniques that could magnify or uh, to that extent so before that the end of the 19th century you know there were microscopes and through those microscopes you could see individual living cells and you could start to see at that time the microscopes were good enough to see inside the cells and to see some of the structure very vaguely that existed in cells but it just looked like sort of blobs you couldn't really make much out but in the early 20th century um uh the technique called x-ray crystallography 
was invented, which involves bouncing X-rays off of crystals. And um, because the crystals have atoms that are stacked in very sort of regular patterns, uh, what happens is that as the X-rays bounce off, um, they the, uh, different uh, rays might bounce off from different layers in that stacking. And the different rays interfere with each other because they're waves and so uh sometimes the um the, the sort of peaks of the waves might coincide and reinforce each other sometimes they might your peak might coincide with the trough and they'll cancel each other out and so you get patterns of bright and dark spots of x-rays um in the reflected uh beam that can be recorded on photograph it, 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 initially in those days it was photographic film which is sensitive to, to x-rays and so you'd you get these patterns of spots and people realized really starting with uh lawrence and william bragg um in the uh, 1910s 1920s they figured out that from this pattern of spots mathematically you could figure out where the the layers of atoms had to be and so you know if you could do that for an, enough different layers you could sort of pretty much figure out where the atoms were um so that was a technique for actually being able to pinpoint literally what how the atoms were arranged in crystals and to begin with they did it with simple substances like sodium chloride like salt or with metals and as people got better at this technique, you could do it with more complicated substances. And in particular, um, it became possible gradually, decades later, to figure out where the atoms in organic and biological substances like proteins, crystals of proteins, where they, how they were arranged. And so we began to be able to use X-ray crystallography to understand the shapes of complex molecules like proteins. And that has been, I think, it's very clearly one of the most important uh, scientific methods uh, uh, of of the modern age, because understanding the structures of molecules, biological molecules like proteins, enables us to understand how they work, how they do the, the job that they do. And the same technique was used to understand the structure of DNA, the, the stuff that encodes our genes. Uh, and, you know, it, it was through that work, through X-ray crystallography of DNA, that it became clear how uh, DNA encodes genes and how it's able to replicate when cells divide. So the fundamental processes of life really were understood that way. Um, but, you know, as the, the century progressed, there were other techniques for figuring out where uh, atoms uh, reside. I mean, one that goes back to certainly to the 19th century called spectroscopy um, is something where, where, where we can look at how atoms and molecules and substances interact with light to absorb certain wavelengths. And in general, they absorb them when there's some kind of vibration in the, in the substance uh, that is at the right frequency to absorb a particular wavelength of light. Um, and uh, th those vibrations are, tend to be vibrations of atoms or often of the bonds that are joining atoms. Um, and so we can, f f by using spectroscopy, we can start to understand what kinds of bonds and what kinds of chemical groups exist within the substance. So again, we can find something out about the molecular structure. Um, and these days, you know, there are other techniques or things like nuclear magnetic resonance, which is another kind of spectroscopy, um, which, uh, you know, helps us to understand what what types of element are in an, a, in a, 
uh, a substance and what sort of environment they're in. And so there's a big array now of uh, methods for, for understanding structure. And we've even got to the stage where we have new forms of microscopy that don't use light, but use electron beams initially and these days uh there, there are types of microscopy that um can just measure the 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 forces that are felt by um the a, a, a tiny little sort of tip scanning across the, the surface um and those forces sort of go uh uh, increase and decrease um, as you sort of uh, as the tip scans across arrays of atoms and using this technique we can actually take images real images of what atoms and molecules look like what sort of shapes they have so you know we finally have a kind of microscopy that can see right down to the sc- the, the scale of atoms and molecules for sure and uh, spectroscopy techniques can also uh, help us uh, to peer into the chemistry on the planets beyond Earth, can it? So are you excited about the uh, chemistry or of the outside world? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, this is, uh, you know, an utterly extraordinary thing. I mean, in fact, it was, this goes really back to the middle of the um, the 19th century. Uh, in the, it was in the 1860s, if I remember rightly, that um, the, at, the element helium was discovered because uh, it was... Uh, the the first element that was discovered not on earth but actually on uh, you know on another um object so it was actually discovered in the sun because of the way this element absorbs sunlight that we were able to split apart the the spectrum of sunlight and see uh, that bits of it had been sort of chopped out, if you like, because they were being absorbed. And they were being absorbed um, at frequencies that didn't correspond to anything we knew on Earth. And uh, so it was you know, figured that this must be a, uh, an element that hadn't been seen before. Uh, and it's called helium from the Greek helios, the name for the sun. So, you know, we could understand the composition of stars this way. And these days, um, these same techniques, spectroscopic techniques, looking at starlight um, can tell us something about the composition of the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And there are we, there are now th- thousands of these planets known. Um, and the, by looking at the way the, the, the light of the parent star of the planets, how that is changed when the, the starlight passes through the atmosphere of the planet. And there are, you know, it, it's incredibly clever how we can figure out, uh, you know, when that's happening um, and how we can sort of pick out the bit of the starlight that is that has been absorbed by the atmosphere of a planet going around it by looking at that um, we are able to say to deduce something about what it is what kinds of chemicals what kinds of molecules are in the atmospheres of those planets and so in this way we found that there are planets that for example have water in their atmospheres as we'd actually expect planets to do because water is one of the most uh, um, common molecules in the whole of the cosmos Um, but you know that's a very exciting thing because if we know that there are planets that have water in their atmospheres um, we we can hope to find out that uh, whether there might be planets that are cool enough that you know that, that that there may be liquid water on their surface, which would make them, as far as we know it, that would make them uh, potentially inhabitable by life of the sort that we know on Earth. So these techniques are now being used to study the composition of planets, you know, in other solar systems 
many, many light years away and to figure out whether some of those planets have atmospheres like Earth or at least have atmospheres that might be suitable for hosting life. Yeah, this is absolutely mind-boggling. So, um, as you mentioned before, chemistry is not yet capturing people's imagination as much as physics or astrophysics, but you are making a really compelling case uh, for, for why it should. So why would people be really interested in it? Well, I, I think partly it's just a matter of making people recognize where chemistry is, that, you know, it's not rows of chemicals um, in bottles in a chemical lab. It's actually everything around us is, you know, every substance we have is a is a chemical substance. It's all made of some sorts of chemicals. Um, and once we start to become sensitized to ask questions about that, for example, you know, why is this substance this color? What are the dyes in, in you know, the stuff that I'm wearing? Why are they that color? Well, they, you know, there are particular chemicals that uh that absorb light and have been selected to absorb for their ability to absorb light and to create that color. So this is how we make dyes. Most of these dyes these days are synthetic. They're made in, in laboratories and in factories um, because they have those characteristics. Um, so, uh, you know, chemistry, it, it is all around us if we remember to ask the right sorts of questions. And, you know, chemistry is now being, I mean, it's been very clear in the way the Nobel Prizes have been awarded in chemistry for decades now that um, so much of the living world is, I mean, pretty essentially all of it is really a chemical process. You know, living things are are are, are made of 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 chemicals of 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 molecules like the proteins that I was talking about earlier. So, understanding what life is is primarily uh, a chemical question. And you know, I think again that this is something that perhaps we might be a little more sensitized to um, d uh, through the pandemic that the vaccines that we have are chemical products. Um, they are, you know, the, for example, the new vaccines, the so-called mRNA vaccines, um, you know, they use a particular kind of chemistry. They use these, these biochemicals, mRNA, to produce the sort of proteins that eventually, that, that are um, the proteins that are in the coronavirus that raise our antibodies and, you know, get our immune system working against the virus. So it is, in the end, chemistry that we have to thank for the fact that we now have these vaccines. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so in your book, you, of course, tell the story of chemistry in a very visual, stunning way. But I'm curious whether it can deepen our understanding of the scientific phenomena. For example, taking, for example, the, um, the snowflakes. I only recently found out that all the paper snowflakes I was making are not really anatomically correct. <laughs> so I guess they were they were eight pointed. That's right. Yeah. Which is, yes, which is the normal way. I'm afraid I'm I'm uh, a real pedant with with my kids, so I forbid eight pointed snowflakes on the whole. They have to oh, be six pointed. Only correct correct Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It, it pains me too much. Just well, in fact, although what we really do, and if, you know, we did it this year, we did it last year. That when we have snow in winter, now I have a, a 
cheap macro lens uh, uh, that I can, you know, just clip over my um, my mobile phone and go out and take photos of of snowflakes. And it's possible uh, if the snow is 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 the right kind of snow, um, it's possible to get fantastic pictures of snowflakes. And uh, you know, I, I've it, it's something I know what I'm going to see. I've seen so many pictures of snowflakes, but I still find there's a, just a complete thrill um, that I get from you know being able to just walk out the front door and take these the pictures of these amazing objects. That are basically, you know, they're, they're crystals of ice, but they have these incredibly intricate patterns. And there are billions of them coming down from the sky and they're just going to disappear. There is this incredible abundance of beauty in, in nature that, you know, just so happens that that's the way uh, the crystallization process works when, um, you know, water vapor uh, uh, freezes um, in the sky. So, you know, I think that's a, that's a fantastic example, not just of the fact that the world is chemical, but that actually there's a real richness in the, the, those sorts of processes. And um, Yen and Wenting have, have made some fabulous uh, t- uh, movies, and, you know, we've got some images of this, of the same kind of process happening in other substances, metals, sometimes when they, um, when, when they uh, solidify from the molten form. Sometimes they, too, will form these so-called dendritic structures, which are like individual snowflake arms. Um, but some of them, because of the fact that the... the, the, the metals have different crystal structures different arrangements of the atoms in the crystal they don't have this six-pointed uh, characteristic that snowflakes have they might be four-pointed so the the side branches don't come out at the sort of angle the 60 degree angles that you see in snowflakes they come out at right angles so you know they look a little different and you can understand why that difference exists by understanding the difference in the crystal structures. Um, So again, we're seeing something that we can see, you know, pretty much with our naked eye that reflects that what is going on for the molecule, for the atoms and the the molecules in in those systems. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, snowflakes are one of the, the best examples of the what you know clearly is, and I think everyone would would recognise this incredible beauty that chemical processes can bring about. So, has anything surprised you really, really deeply when you were researching the book? Well, um, I, I guess uh, a, a lot of the things that I was writing about were were familiar to me. You know, I was uh, I, I loved the images, but I kind of knew what I was looking at. However, there was there was one thing where, where, where there was a final uh, chapter that I really wanted to encourage Yen and Wenting to be able to 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 create images for, which is about patterns. Um, so we have a separate section on things like snowflakes, but at the end we have different kinds of patterns um, uh, that chemical processes can can form. Um, and some of them are related to the kinds of patterns that we might see in animal markings or um, or, or insect markings or butterfly wings, that they, these two are chemical processes. And um, they were trying to um, create a certain kind of pattern called, a, it's called a chemical garden or a silicate garden. And it's something that has been known in fact, I talk about it in the book about how it, it goes right back at least to the 17th century. People started seeing these 
complicated forms that could be made from you know inorganic uh, they look like they look like sort of molds or something or, or or mushrooms but they're actually made from the substance called water glass which is basically a bit like a sort of solution of glass literally um so they're completely inorganic and um when uh, uh it was uh, um uh, yen uh at uh, one point he said look we 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 found these images when we were working with this stuff what do you think they are and i'd never heard seen that they, they looked a bit familiar they were kind of uh rings of of crystallization that were happening on the edge of the the the, the flasks that they were using with this water glass in it but I didn't. I'd never come across that process before, and so I, you know, asked a few people uh, who were experts in this field about it, and they hadn't seen it before, and they, you know, had some ideas about what was going on. Um, but it was rather lovely to to find, you know, this surprising thing that it seemed mm. no one had noticed before. This new kind of patterning process. So we have those in the book. We're not a hundred percent sure how they're forming. We have ideas about that, but that was quite exciting to find something we hadn't done. Anticipated. Yeah, and uh, something that also stuns me is the fractals <laughs> that are present in, in some of the really uh, microscopic levels. Even the same snowflakes, some of them are fractals. <laughs> well, yes, that, that a- absolutely. I mean, snowflakes are an example of this. These structures called fractals, I which um, <laughs> basically what that means is that they are structures that have certain elements that just repeat and repeat again and again at smaller scales. So the you know the snowflakes have six branches. Those branches have side branches coming off. Sometimes you get side branches coming off those. It's a little bit like the structures that you see in ferns, mm. so in in living you know or, organisms that that you know fractal structures are very common in the living world. I mean, trees have a fractal structure with the you know the central trunk, and then the branches split, and then they split off, and eventually they become little twigs. Um, but you see fractal structures of various sorts also in some. Uh, crystallization processes where you don't get blocky crystals you get these very these branching sort of patterns and there are several examples of very very beautiful examples like that of crystal growth in the book too so after writing the book have you changed um, any ways that you view or do something in everyday life maybe the way you brew your coffee uh, you know I think it was actually the book that made me that inspired me to, to to think, look, you know, if we're uh, kind of lucky enough to have snow in the winter, which is more rare now in these times of, uh, of, of climate warming, sadly, but we do still get it. We got it this, this year. Um, if that happens, um, get out there, get out there with this camera and, and, and take some images. And, you know, I, it, it's really possible and, and, actually quite easy to do that and you know they're nothing they have nothing like the beauty that uh, yen and winting's images have but it's still exciting because i can do it myself and i can do it you know uh, uh, sort of outside my front door so actually i think um although you know i felt probably to begin with oh okay i know all about these chemical processes that are going on you know i know what i'm writing about um just the the fact of seeing these wonderful images that they had produced is inspired me to want to you know look for them and to look for them in in crystal i mean you know one of the things that's have been happening also of course during lockdown although it happened for for us before that as well because we home educated our children when they were younger so you know we've been doing some of their schoolwork with them and some of their scientific work with them and it's meant that we've been doing some experiments 
uh, like this. And, you know, that's been rather lovely to be um, looking at things like, you know, trying to grow crystals of, you know, coloured sugar or something um, just to see what what we can do or mixing up cornstarch and, you know, a cornstarch solution and seeing it suddenly solidify if you stir it too fast you know it's it's um lovely to have the uh the motivation the reason to actually go back and play with some of these simple chemical processes because you know there's there's still for me there's still uh, a wonder to be to be had from them even if i they're familiar to me and i understand what's going on it's still there's still an excitement in actually doing it yeah for sure and uh, beyond just opening up the whole new world of chemistry in a book it actually makes you so curious to, as you say, to go there and do stuff and look for things. So yeah, I, I, re- yeah, I really hope that it that it has that uh, that that sort of inspiring uh, effect on people, you know, as as it did on me. Um, because again, you know, what one of the messages we want to get across is this isn't stuff that is you know only going to happen in labs i mean the same with the, the this this chapter on flowers you know you can do this you can go out there and you know if you're lucky enough to have a garden or if you have an access access to a garden you know you can go and look and look in detail and look under a microscope or under a lens you know at, at, at what these um these structures and petals look like the same with butterfly wings i mean that's something else we did that you know if you have a reasonably good microscope and you get a butterfly wing and look at it in detail you see these tiny little scales that are kind of tiled together to make up the pigment patterns so you know it's all out there if we know what to look look for yeah for sure well we've taken up a lot of your time so can you tell us what are you currently working on well, I, um, I don't think this is lockdown related, but it just so happened that I found myself essentially working on four books at the same time. So I have this one coming out um, uh, in, in May and uh, I actually have another book uh, coming out at pretty much the same time, which is a very different book. It's, uh, it's about modern myths. And um, it's, uh, so it looks at the stories um, that we have told, mostly literary stories, although increasingly they're in other media, that I th- argue have the, a gen- the genuine status that myth used to have, that the classical myths used to have. So these are stories like Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, Dracula. And I'm uh, looking at first of all, why I feel they, they can be classified as myths and what uh, what function do they serve? Because myths have functions. They had functions in the ancient world. And, you know, the fact that we are creating these stories and giving them mythical status means that we have some need for them. So I'm really sort of burrowing into what these stories are really about, what they reveal about the modern world really and about our, our modern way of being um so that's that's out there i've um been working on a book uh, i won't say much about it now but it's uh it's a book about the kinds of minds that can exist in in the world um and by that i mean uh, it, it's looking at the range of 
human minds that exist because we now recognize there's a diversity of, of human minds, how they compare with animal minds, whether we can genuinely start to think about at least the minds of machines, AI. Um, I'd look a little bit about uh, into whether we can deduce anything about the kinds of minds that might exist on these other planets, these possibly inhabitable planets that we know must be out there in the cosmos. So it's, it's a book that is trying to look at the land landscape of minds that might exist in the universe. Oh, that sounds super exciting. Looking forward to, to reading the, the books about myths and minds as well. Well, half the time I don't understand the mind of my guinea pigs, so hopefully you can shine some light on that. <laughs> <laughs> we have guinea pigs too, and I think they're, they're going to be a, a forever a mystery. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> so where can our <laughs> listeners find more information about your book and also your work? Oh, well, um, the uh, the book, The Beauty of Chemistry, is being published by MIT Press. So it will certainly be, be, be on their site. Um, so this is Massachusetts Institute, Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, Press, uh, which is, has done a, a, an absolutely fantastic job. Um, you know, it's no uh, easy task for any publisher to take on the kinds of uh, uh image-heavy book that this is, with, and they've done a glorious job of reproducing these images. So that's, that's available through MIT Press. The book on myths is being published by the University of Chicago Press. Excellent. And your work, do you have a blog or...? Uh, I have a, um, well, I, I certainly have a, a, a website, www.philipball.co.uk, um, and I try to keep that updated with what uh, I've published and what, what I'm bringing out. Um, I te- that tends to be, as these things are, tends to be sporadic. Um, but uh, usually, the, 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 you know, whatever it is that I'm, I'm publishing, I, I tend to talk about on, on Twitter as well. So you can find me on Twitter and, uh, and <laughs> see what I'm up to. Um, yeah, so those are probably the best places to look. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. It has been a truly delightful conversation. Oh, thank you, Galena. No, it's been lovely talking to you.